Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Oh, I forgot to ask you to stand. Let's stand for the following three verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want to preach to you this morning on these four verses. I'm going to title my sermon, The Heart of the Gospel. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we do ask that you would help us today. Give me clarity as I preach. I pray that I would preach with passion your truth, not merely my own ideas. I pray that you would open our hearts to shape us and fashion us according to your likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1977, or I'm sorry, in 1799, got my numbers backwards. In 1799, a young man named Conrad Reed was hiking through his family farm and in a creek bed, he found a large, interesting rock. He picked up this 17-pound rock and took it home with him. He set it out at uh, the uh, door of their cabin and uh, appreciated the rock so much, he decided to keep it and make it the doorstop. So for three years, this rock served as a step. It wasn't until 1802, three years later, his father thought, I'm going to take this rock down to a jeweler and find out what it is. He took it to a jeweler friend, and it was discovered that this was the largest piece of gold ever found east of the Rockies. It was estimated to be, in our money today, worth $517,000. Saints, do you understand that sometimes we are standing on, on pure gold, and we have no clue? We have no clue the infinite worth and value of what it is that we stand on. And I'm not talking about the gold of this world, but the gold of God's kingdom. That gem of infinite worth, the priceless piece that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many of you know that it's possible to be a Christian, to be a blood-bought, saved citizen of the kingdom of God and forget how valuable the gospel message actually is. I wonder if you've ever had this experience where you just realize you have this moment of reawakening and you're brought back into the realm of worship and you realize like, man, like I have been taking for granted this impossible reality that is mine in Christ. Gold. 
pure gold. Out with the old, in with the new. Romans 8, 1 through verse 4 shows us that we are brought into a whole new era. That the Christian experience is like absolutely nothing else. We are brought into a new life where the old is out and the new is in. Paul begins in verse one with this big idea. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you missed last week, we just looked at that verse. Check it out online. Catch up with, with the, the exposition of verse one in particular. It is such a massive declaration. Like, I wish I could communicate how I actually feel about Romans 8, 1. You know, like, I, I, sometimes I think, like, art and poetry and music uh, uh, serve where words fail to try to communicate some kind of beauty that, you know, as we're talking about it, we're just like, I, it doesn't fully register uh, in the way that I'm communicating it, how marvelous and how wonderful this actually is. You know, like if I was a singer with the smoothest voice, I would sing out the most beautiful melody you can imagine to try to communicate Romans 8.1. If I was a painter, I would paint the most crazy, beautiful, abstract piece of art that would communicate the depth of like interest and intrigue and, and, and try to communicate something of how Romans 8.1 makes us feel as Christians. Are you with me? But I'm a preacher, so I'll preach it. We live in a world of condemnation. But God brings a new era of no condemnation. We live with continual accusation, but God brings continual peace. Condemnation comes, but God says you are free. You know, condemnation comes from our friends at times. Condemnation comes from those we most love. Condemnation comes from our enemies. Condemnation comes from the world around us. Condemnation comes from Satan himself. And condemnation comes from our own conscience. We're wrapped in condemnation. Yet God comes and says, you are mine, bought with a price. And I declare no condemnation. This condemnation we discovered in Romans 1 through 7 comes from God himself because we are sinners and we are under the wrath of God. Yet God has done something to take the condemnation that we deserve to bring us into this new reality. Or as I put it last week, since Romans 1 through 7, therefore, Romans 8. Romans 8, 1 is a concluding statement, and it introduces a whole new, new reality to us, a whole new realm, and it is this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is the heart of Christianity? Well, the heart of the heart of Buddhism is nirvana. That's nice. Tranquility's nice. 
But what about my guilt? The heart of Islam is obedience. What about my sin? The heart of Judaism is tradition. For what purpose? We could go on. The heart of business is money. The heart of Starbucks is coffee. The heart of Nike is shoes. And the heart of business is money. (laughs) The heart of nations is security and power. The heart of marriage is commitment. The heart of neighborhoods is community. But what is the heart of Christianity? It is what we find in Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I say all that to say it's like nothing else. You can't say the heart of anything is like this. Or if I could back up and be a little more specific, the heart of our Christian faith is the gospel message. And the heart of the gospel is Romans 8.1. So saints, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we have verse 1 down? Praise God. Now, where I want to turn this week is connecting verse 1 with verses 2 through 4. Because what Paul shows us in verses 2 through 4 is how this is possible and why God has brought us into this new realm. So in verses 2 through 4, we see two different grounding statements in verse 2 and 3. And then we see the purpose in verse 4. Look at verse 2 and 3. You see that word for, F-O-R, in verse 2? Or F-O-R in verse 3? Somebody say for. For is a grounding word, all right? This is helpful for you as you study the Bible. These kind of words matter. Uh, He made a statement in verse 1. He's now grounding that statement, or think of it as like two stakes in the ground for this tent uh, of no condemnation. He's grounding it in verse 2 and verse 3. And then he goes to the purpose. Look at verse 4. He says, verse 4, in order that. So he tells us the purpose for verse 1 and verse 4. So let's just work through it together. Are you with me? Verse 2, 4, first grounding statement. The law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How is it that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus? Action number one. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus because of the power of the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer once said, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things that we can do ourselves. And that is true first and foremost about our salvation. What a pity that so many go through life thinking about how they can save themselves. I got to get myself together. I got to focus on me. I'll come to church, but let me get me straight first. If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. Our salvation 
doesn't come because of our power. I'm not saved because I had the power to get myself together. But God, church, is looking to do the impossible. What a pity when we think it's all on us. Those that are not saved are those who say, it's on me. I've got to get myself together. Whereas Jesus invites us to come to him. How? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Where do I see power here? You see that word law in verse 2. Law here is not referring to the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial traditions. Law here is a word used as a metaphor for power. If you go back to Romans chapter 7, verse 21 and 22, he says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right here with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Paul there in uh, uh, Romans 7 is using law in a metaphorical way. He, of, of course, there's not a law of sin. Nobody ever issued some kind of paper on the law of sin. It's a metaphor for the power of sin, the way that sin works. When we find out what God requires of us, when we discover what is good and right for us to do, sin goes to work in our members and we want to do what? The opposite. That's the law of sin. That's the power of sin. And that's why nobody can save themselves because we're under the power of sin. And so what he says here in verse 2, skipping forward, is, is that the, the power of the Spirit comes in. We could, we could exchange the word power for law, and I think it would make sense. He says for, let me, let me exchange these words, for the power of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. Did you get that? The power of God's Spirit has set you free from the power of sin and death. The, the theological word that would be used here is the word regeneration, meaning there is a new power that has come over us, that has filled us, and we are no longer under the power of sin and death. Now notice there are two victories here. The first victory is that over sin, the power of sin, meaning the Christian is a Christian because the power of the Spirit has come in and they are no longer under the power of sin. They're no longer a slave to sin, but they are now freed by the work of the Holy Spirit to love God. The second victory here is the victory over death. The power of sin and death. This is interesting because death is inescapable. We all die. I don't care how great you think you are, how successful you are, how pretty you are. We all decay in the ground. What he's telling us is that the power of death, which is so strong, the greatest power of all, if you would, has been overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
meaning the Holy Spirit has moved in in such a way that he has, one, given us spiritual life now, real spiritual life, like our eternal life now has begun. We will never die. When our bodies die, the Holy Spirit has so preserved us that he will keep us alive in Christ which is what we often refer to as heaven, until that day when our bodies are remade and our souls are reunited with body and we live forever with God. Death has been defeated. And so, so the Spirit of God has then brought us from the old to the new. Out with the old, in with the new. That should have been the title of my sermon. Out with the old, in with the new. A new era, a new realm, through the work of regeneration. If I could use my wife as an example of regeneration. I asked her for her permission. I know everybody always gets nervous when a preacher uses his wife as an example. My wife, uh, my wife quote unquote believed she would have agreed to doctrinal points of Jesus and what have you. But for many years, there was no real spiritual life in her. She had no real desire for the Lord. Nothing had really ever changed. The power of sin had never been broken. Death reigned in her body. It all came to a head in the year 2010 as the power of sin and death kind of rose to the surface and it brought things to a head. And it, in January of 2011, by God's grace, a miracle took place and my wife began confessing things to me and to God and she began to believe the gospel. Like really believe the gospel, like something changed. And all of a sudden, like that night, she was like, what book should I read? And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> like, it was sort of like a Paul of Tarsus moment. Like, how long is this going to last? So I encouraged her to read Desiring God by John Piper. And she, like, read it in a week. And she's like, what's another one? I'm like, something, something has changed. The way she explained it in her baptism testimony was this. She said, the hopelessness I always felt was gone. I had an insatiable desire to be in the Word. Even better, it made sense to me. I had a new desire to serve others, share Christ with others, and serve the church. There were just, these were just some of the beautiful proofs from the Spirit that God had saved me. Spiritual transformation. The power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what's crazy? What happened in our own ministry at the time is that Friends of ours, those around us, started having their own spiritual change. People started getting saved. It was like a domino effect. You know, I wonder sometimes, like, is the lack of spiritual power in so many churches a result of the fact that their leaders are not even regenerate? They're not even saved. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, therefore, there's no power in their ministry. And so, they just talk about how to have a better job and how to have more success and all of these worldly things because they're not Christians. No, we come with spiritual power. 
Miraculous power. Regeneration. Conversion. And listen, it's not something we do. It's something that happens to us. We can't explain it. Something happened. Regeneration. That is the first grounding for Romans 8.1. How is it possible that we have no condemnation? It's because the power of the Holy Spirit has done something in you. He's changed you. He's converted you. He's filled you. Second reason. Now, the second grounding statement is in verse 3, and I'm going to break this into two different actions that I see here. But let me read uh, uh, verse 3 to you. For, again, somebody say for. For. That's a grounding word. Here's the second grounding statement for verse 1. For God has done. Let's just pause right there. For God has done. All right, we can keep going. What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I want to take this grounding statement and turn it into two different actions that we see from God for us on our behalf. Secondly, all right, so the first one is this. There's no condemnation because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, there's no condemnation because of the love of the Father. Now, law here in verse 3, I think, is actually now referring, Paul's going back to the Mosaic law, the law of the Old Testament, the moral and ceremonial uh, laws and civil laws. And what he's teaching us here is that the law could never do uh, what it was, uh, what, what we really needed to be done. Why? It's not because there was a problem with the law, but he says the law was weakened, meaning its impact, its power was weakened, not by itself, but by the flesh, by us, because of the power of sin, all right? So the law could never do what it was, was, uh, what we needed. So where do we see God's love here? He says this. He says, so God has done what we needed by sending his own son. God sent the son. Now that's love. But isn't it hard to try to think of a human analogy where this works out? Like what father in his right mind sends his son to die for a murderer? What father in his right mind sends his son to pay for the theft of someone else? If, let's say I stole 100 bucks from Mike Roach, all right? And Mike looks at Titus. He says, Mike, uh, he says, Titus, you're going to give me a hundred bucks for what Joel took from me. You would say, Mike, you have lost your mind. That's not justice. You see, we, 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 we wrestle with these things at times, don't we? Uh, one theologian I read years ago, he called this divine child abuse that 
God would have to take out his judgment for someone else on his own son. Is this divine child abuse? Now, I'm going to say no, it is not. Why? Let me give you five reasons real quick. Number one, God is not like us. Like, we're not to take God and create images of him. This is a breaking the second commandment. Like, I, I, there, there is a place for analogies, but we got to be careful with analogies. Because God is not human. God is not like us. Secondly, the son wanted to be sent. He is of one mind with the father for all of eternity in history, uh, eternity past. He existed, Jesus existed as a spirit with the father and with the spirit. Oneness, not three gods, not one created by another, but one God, one mind. And so redemption was the plan of Jesus as well as the Father. He wanted to be sent. Number three, no human son has the ability to, ad- to die for another, another. We can't do it. It's just impossible because I have my own sins to pay for. So I can't be a perfect sacrifice for someone else. Number four, with that said, the only way redemption could ever have been accomplished is it's for a perfect human being to become the sacrifice. But since there's no perfect human being, you see the problem. And so God did the unthinkable. God took on human flesh. When Jesus became human, he actually became human and made redemption possible to become the sacrifice for us and for our sin. And number five, fifthly and lastly, we've got to remember that the judgment for sin, which Jesus took, is Jesus' own judgment. Think about this. It's not just the father who's got wrath and the son is like, let me, let me step in the, and take, take the... Now, this is Jesus' wrath for sin as well. Skip forward to Revelation. We're walking through Revelation on Wednesday nights. A lot of judgment in Revelation. Who is it? Well, you, don't know, you might not know yet because we haven't got there. Who is it that's sending the judgment? It's Jesus. Wrath comes from Jesus. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he's taking his own judgment for sin in his body on the cross. So, so to say that God then sent his son into the world is, is, to, is to leave us in awe of God, not in judgment of God. God sending his own son is to say that salvation did not come cheap. It came at the expense of his own son that God unconditionally set his love on sinners. Look, it shows us how much God loves us. What does John 3.16 say? It says, for God so loved the world, how does he show it? That he gave his only begotten son. This is a demonstration of 
God's love. It's his love, saints. That's the only way that I can communicate it. It's the greatest expression of love that you can imagine. The world might not love you, but God does. Your friends might not love you the way that they should, but God does. Your family might struggle, struggle to love you, but God loves you perfectly with no struggle. Even your own church, like we might get a, we might score a B in how well we love you. And maybe somebody says, I'm going to give you a D. All right. Be honest. That's fine. We can take it. Because at, the, at our very best, we are, we are wrapped in our sinful flesh and we struggle to love perfectly. But God loves completely. A pure love. A love that gives of his own son. This is how we go from condemnation to no condemnation. The power of the spirit and the love of the father. Amen? Amen. Thirdly, last point. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus because of the work of the son. Don't you love how we see the whole trinity here in verses two through four? How does God get us from condemnation to no condemnation? It's a Trinitarian work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's power, the Father's love, and the Son's work. Going back to verse 3, he says, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is to say that he became human. He took on the flesh that is under the condemnation of the law going to die, under the condemnation, the penalty of sin. He took on flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. In the flesh simply means he died in an actual body. In his body, he condemned sin. So the father sends the son. Why does the son come? This is interesting. You read a thousand different Christian books and you might get a thousand different reasons as to why Jesus came. You know, some might emphasize, well, Jesus came as the model to show us how to live, to show us how to love people. True, he is our model, but that's not the reason given here as to why he came. He came for, to confront the unjust power figures of the day and to create a revolution and to overturn things and to show that the kingdom of God is with us and that we can be citizens of the kingdom and do things a different way. True. But that's not, that's not the reason given here as to why he came. Why did he come? I've got to use the movie, I'm going to apologize right now. I've got to use the movie It as an example. It's probably a terrible example for a sermon. The movie It. It. You know? Uh, what's, the, what's the clown's name? Pennywise. Look, kids in the room, don't watch it. All right? If you go home and say, hey, he, Joel said I could watch it. No, I didn't. Um, I watched the original, all right? That was a freaky movie back in like the 80s, and I was scared of clowns for about 10 years. 
Um, but there is this one scene at the end of the movie. Uh, in the, the new movies, I think it's the end of the second movie. There's this one scene that really does illustrate something well. What they begin to discover over years is that the clown, this scary clown, is really the surface problem. Like running from this clown or trying to get rid of the clown is, is like putting a Band-Aid on a wound. It's not doing anything. And it's not until they discover that they've got to actually get into this like weird realm where this beast lives, into the heart of it all. And they have to actually take out the heart of this beast. And it's like, bloop, bloop, in their hands. All right, so why did Jesus come to earth? <laughs> Listen, why, why does injustice happen? Why is there favoritism and greed? Why do people build barns of wealth while others are starving to death? Why is there prejudice in the world? Why is there white supremacy in the world? Like we could just go on with a list of social ills. Morality, why is there adultery? Why do people look at pornography? Why is there robbing and stealing? Why is there lust? Why is there anger? Why is there war all around the world? You see, the, the only way that we can deal with these clowns is if we get to the heart of it. Yeah. Even in our own life, the, the only way that we can deal with the clowns of our own heart is if we can somehow get to the heart of it. And this is what he does in verse three. He, he comes, he says, for sin. Yeah. I'm coming for the heart. Yeah, yeah. I'm coming straight to the heart of the beast. And how does he do it? He condemns sin in the flesh. He destroys the power of sin as he dies for you and me on the cross. Now going back to verse three, he says God has done it. God has done it. How is it that I am saved? What is the gospel? I mean, is it, is it so much of what you might hear today that's popular, such as like, you've got a breakthrough right around the corner. Something good is about to come into your life. God is about to do something in your life. God is going to make a change in your life. You've got to cut off toxic people in your life. You've got to focus on what you've got to focus on. God is about to do something. Is that the gospel? No. Why? None of that's good news. The gospel comes and says, God has done something. It's a declaration, not about what he's going to do temporarily in your life to put a couple more dollars in your pocket or to make you a celebrity or to make you prettier. It's what God has done getting to the core of our problem. He took out the heart of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the love of the Father. God accomplished our salvation. That is good news, church. Oh, and yeah, there's people around us that are problematic and pulling stuff. And, and they might not go away. 
But God has still done it. In the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of our problems, we have incredible joy as we realize that we have been standing on gold the entire time, a a, a treasure beyond worth. Uh, We can't even compare the value of what we have in Christ. God has done it. I love the way the NIV puts it. God did. So simple. God did. I was going to call my sermon God Did, but DJ Kali just came out with an album called God Did, and it's like number one in the charts, and I had to listen to it because Eminem is on it, and he's rapping about God. I'm like, mind-blowing, and it's kind of disappointing. It's actually very disappointing. Anyway, I couldn't call my sermon God Did because I didn't want you to think I was just making a pop culture reference, but I went ahead and made the reference anyway. So there's that, and I apologize for that as well. But God has done it. God did it. Amen? Amen. My best wasn't good enough. I was standing in filthy rags, and now I'm standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so let me close with this. Real quick, what's the purpose? You know, God always acts for a reason. John Stott summarizes it this way. He says, God condemns sin in Christ so that holiness might appear in us. Look at the purpose in verse 4. Everybody say, in order that. That is a purpose statement. God has done this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who work not according to the flesh, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice how he says, walk. One theologian says that is a great uh, uh, picture of the Christian life to to show us the steady kind of uh, progress of the Christian, if if not unspectacular. Meaning, we don't run toward holiness. It's not a sprint toward holiness. It's a walk. It doesn't always look or feel all that spectacular, does it? But it's also not a crawl. It's not a standstill. You see, check it out. Holiness, there is no holiness. There is no holiness that will bring you salvation but there is no salvation that will not bring holiness. Meaning, Romans 8.1 is totally God's grace. It's a declaration for sinners, saved by grace, placed into Christ, there is no condemnation. I think it'd be Ephesians 2. Uh, 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 Oh man, my mind's gonna go blank. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Somebody help me out, get me started. For by grace you've been saved. Through works, nope. Through faith, it's not your own doing, it's a gift of God. We're saved by grace. You see, some people think we're saved by works. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by our holiness. We don't be holy so we can get no condemnation. No, we have no condemnation by grace. But you see, then on the flip side are those who say, well, then holiness doesn't matter. Well, no, the reason 
The, in order that, the reason that God has brought us into this new era is for what purpose? So that we might become holy. So that we might walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The purpose of our salvation is to do good works. Verse one, big statement, no condemnation. Verse two and three, grounding statements for verse one, purpose statement, verse four, for this purpose, so that you might be made holy, so that you might walk according to the Spirit. A biblical example of this as I close. Famous account of Jesus' ministry. There's a woman that was caught in adultery. And all of the men in the city gather around and they begin to condemn. And they pick up stones to stone this woman. We don't know much about her. We don't know if she was a prostitute or if she was a married woman that had cheated on her husband. We don't know anything about the woman. But what we do know is that she had sinned greatly and that men were about to kill her with stones. Jesus doodles in the sand. Again, a mystery. We don't know what he wrote. People speculate. The Bible doesn't tell us. And then Jesus stands up and he simply makes a statement. He says, for those who have no sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. And as you know the story, as the story goes, the stones begin to drop until no one is left. Jesus then nears this woman who nearly just lost his life. And he says, where are your accusers now? And then he says, wait, before I even say what he says, who is it that has the right to throw a stone? Jesus does. He says, let those who have no sin throw the first stone. He could have picked it up and stoned her. Then he looks at this woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. No condemnation by grace. What's the second thing he says? Now go and sin no more. Out with the old, in with the new. We're brought into a whole new era by God's grace. Now therefore, in order that we might walk according to the Spirit. Hey, there's the mood music I was looking for. Does anybody know where that music's coming from? We'll, we'll wait. That was, that was good timing, though. <laughs> a, uh, 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 an organ would have been a little more appropriate, but there we go. <laughs> That is the loudest phone speaker I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Out with the old, in with the new, church. I remember years ago, I, uh, this, this is back when I was like broke, broke, all right? I had one pair of shoes and I wore them out 
I had, for a long time, no money to buy, buy new shoes. And my shoes were so bad, if you've ever been there, that your feet hurt just constantly. Because you're always walking on these miserable shoes. I had worn a hole through the insole down through the sole. You could see through my shoe, all right? It was really, really bad. I finally got some money, and I determined I'm going down to get some new shoes. So I went to the Foot Locker on Pennsylvania Avenue. It tells you how long ago this was. There was a Foot Locker on Pennsylvania Avenue back in the day. And I I, uh, parked my car, got out, walked into Foot, Foot Locker, walked back out about two minutes later with a brand new pair of shoes. And I took off my old shoes right there on the sidewalk, put them in the trash can, and I put on my new shoes. And it was like the best feeling one of the best feelings I ever remember. I felt like I was walking on air. And then I thought, why didn't I come up with some money earlier to get some new shoes? You see, sometimes it's not until we experience the new that we realize what we've been doing. The, 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 the tired nature of the old, the pain of walking according to the flesh, but we've been brought to walk in a new life. And so we say, out with the old and in with the new. And so church, we celebrate having new life in Christ this morning. We have been brought into this new era. We have a helmet of salvation put it on. We have a shield of faith. We have a belt of truth wrapped around our waist. We have a breastplate of righteousness, and our feet have been fitted with new shoes, and they are wrapped in the gospel of peace. And so let us live, let us live according to the newness of life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this this text. We ask, God, that you would bless us even now as we seek to live in light of this reality, that you have changed us, that you have done something in us for us and for our salvation so that we might walk according to the Spirit. Help us now to lead lives that display the glory of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.